0: Today's podcast episode, we have running enthusiast and running shoe specialist Mitch Larkin. Mitch Larkin works at the running company. It's a company that has multiple stores around Australia, and they specialize in helping athletes find the right shoe. and They're really dedicated to making sure that athletes uh, go through the entire experience of figuring out what their current running experience is like what their current gait is, what their current biomechanics are doing, what their injury history is, and much more to help them find the right shoe that is a whole range of things that is uh, safe for them to run in, that will help them with their performance, uh, that they can train in um, and make sure that they get the most out of without injuring themselves. And there's a whole lot to that. And if anyone's ever been to a store to try on some running shoes, you'll know that there's a whole bunch of brands. It's a whole bunch of types of shoes. And for most of us, we don't even know where to start. We've either had the experience of... Uh, just p- picking what we've picked before running in the same type of shoe our whole life, uh, picking a, show, a shoe, because it looks good or the color, because you, you've got no other factors to go off, picking a shoe that maybe feels okay. Uh, you don't know whether that feeling is actually good or not uh, a whole range of things. And there's a real lack of knowledge out there about how to actually pick the right shoe for use. That's everything we're going to talk about in this episode. And dad, we loved it because it's uh, questions we're always asking. We're always looking for more research behind, uh, what's actually the best shoe for people and, um, Mitch comes from a place of, uh, and this is how he puts it in his own words, is we have just seen thousands and thousands of people come through the store. So we have a really good eye for what actually works and what doesn't, because there isn't as much quantity of data around our shoe performance. And so we really love that perspective and we love the insights that Mitch gave.
1: Yeah, exactly, Jordan one of the things that I was really intrigued was um, the fact that every single person is suited to a particular style of shoe. And one of the things we want to, you know, ram home to everybody we coach is you can only race well if you get to the starting line. And if you've got a shoe that's going to create injury um, and you don't get to the starting line, it's going to be a very uh, disappointing uh, period of, of, uh, of your athletic performance. So starting with the right shoes that fit you, Um, when it doesn't matter what the brand is, it's good to have an unbiased opinion from someone um, who's just going to give you the right advice and what is suitable to you and what's going to get you to the start line without – Uh, creating an injury stress that's going to be you know in in a disappointing result so i really loved it from that point of view uh, really honing in on that uh, you know people have individual needs and and certain shoes will provide that for you Um, just getting to know what your needs are first and then giving you the right shoe that should get you to train properly and uh, be injury free and get to race the way you want to on race day absolutely so without
0: further ado here is the episode Mitch Lorcan, welcome to the Traveller Podcast. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks, guys. Good to see you both. Um, First question we want to ask is, what does running mean to you? Um, It's it's definitely changed over the years from when I was a kid. I was
2: um, big into cross-country at primary school, high school, Um, not necessarily by choice either. I used to go over to the start of the cross country race just to get out of a couple of um, periods of class. And then, and I would go in full uniform with bucks 24 sevens on no running gear. And then as soon as the gun would go, I would kind of go into a, you know, primal like state um, and, and bury myself. Um, and afterwards often wonder why the hell like, why it kept happening and why I was getting so caught up in it. And then I got dragged along to a couple of cross country meets on weekends by my parents used to throw off, used to hate the car ride there. Um, (laughs) And to be honest, I probably burnt out a bit on it in in high school and then came back to it um, a bit later on in my early twenties, though in a, I guess a much more approachable way and, really sort of fell in love with it again. And it's basically become, you know, a big part of my work life in a for an obvious reason. But mm-hmm. I just gen, genuinely love getting other people excited about running and, um, mm. you know, getting them comfortable running, passing on things that I've picked up over the years. So it's kind of become, you know, it's taught me a lot. And um, it's a vehicle for me to help pass on information to other
0: people as well. That's a great answer. And so the next step is how did you become so obsessed with shoes? I actually, I,
2: when I was at uni studying, um, I, I was a customer at Clifton Hill, the running company. Um, and Chris, uh, served me at the time. And I remember being fascinated with how detailed everything was. Um, and I'd say my brain sort of works in the sort of fairly analytical way. Like I would attach myself to things that have, I guess, an analytical or processes based or systematic approach to things, which is why I like, you know, the training side of it too. Like just everything fits together in a neat way to create an outcome. Um, And so when I left the shop, I sort of said, oh, this might be a good job while I'm at, you know, uni. Anyway, I finished my course and then after I finished uni, I actually was kind of had realised that it was probably a lot more exciting and interesting than what my course was going to let me do. So I ended up working there and then as things evolved and I got more experience, I eventually um, ended up going out on my own and opening Albert Park, which is where we are today. Um, But yeah, just through, I guess, like loving, loving the work and loving how, um, yeah, how much we could like, once I realized how important shoes were as a, I guess, a training tool and given how much time spending people spend in them, um, I realized how like much of a influence it could have and how many, how well you could use them to kind of encourage certain things or offload others. Um, and that really drew me in, um, And yeah. How
1: have you uh, in that period seen the changes that have evolved in the, in the actual uh, structure and functionality of shoes over the, over the journey? Is that, has it been a a big improvement? And obviously, you know, we've seen the last couple of years with the carbon soles, but what's your take on all of that?
2: Yeah, definitely from a performance point of view, there's been a huge shift and, that's fairly well measured now in the, in the labs in terms of what we know that the shoes can do for people. Um, but even if you look in a more broad sense at, um, I guess population in some of these big marathon events or even halves and even in an Ironman distance or 70.3, we sit, you can see that a lot like it's getting faster. Um, average times, even to a point, there's some people that won't get as big a benefit as others, depending on how fast they're moving. Um, but even in the last five years, like it's every year, a half marathon loses a couple of seconds. You know, we saw Kipchoge do some crazy things and outside of them being exceptional athletes, there's no doubt about it. The shoes have had a massive part of that too, not just from the actual race, but what it's allowing them to do in training in terms of doing more, not getting as beat up, um, you know, being able to recruit more because they're moving faster. So they are all kind of added up. And um, that's, I think that's probably what we have a huge, uh, had a big role to play in um, the improvements that we've seen across the board, even on the track. I don't know if you were paying attention at, Tokyo you would have seen a lot of the same athletes wearing very similar spikes. Um, and you know, we're seeing like the 5k and 10k track, um, records being getting close to being challenged. They kind of seemed like Everest records that were not going to be knocked off anytime soon. Um, and even, yeah, even at middle distance level, um, if we could remove, the clean records from the dirty ones, <laughs> which is hard to know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're probably getting closer there too, and over
0: 15 and maybe the mile. Um, but yeah. I'd, I'd love to, uh, we, we will get into the performance shoes a lot more later in the conversation. Uh, but from a more, more big picture point of view, um, I guess thinking from that perspective, how important are our shoes for people? And you said before, you realize they they're such an important uh, a tool to get right yet for most of us, uh, we kind of just wear the same shoes that we've worn all our life or we don't, we just kind of pick one because the selection is so big, you don't know what's right or not. Um, How important is it to get this right?
2: Well, if you look at sort of your typical week for someone who's predominantly running, you can assume that they would spend, you know, between 70 to 80% of their week doing sort of easy zone one, zone two, um, maybe slightly faster uh, depending on how um, developed they are in a shoe that you, we would consider sort of your mileage shoe, which that's the shoe that you really need to have um, safe in the sense that you're going to spend most of your time in it. So if you have something slightly off and we look at the repetitive stress of running, you know, say um, 170 steps per minute, um, it doesn't take long to see why that repetitive ish pop stress could be causing a you know a tissue stress to break down or Mm. develop into something more sinister so the way that we would look at footwear for most people is we're trying to make a conservative choice where they're ending up in something that suits their mechanics firstly but also potentially avoids anything that we pick up um, that they might be prone to so say someone has a limited range of motion through one of their ankle joints because they had a history of um you know tib and fib fracture from football or something we wouldn't be looking at shoes that are um you know with a lower pitch would be trying to offload that um because if the foot doesn't have range of motion through the ankle joint Um, it'll find it elsewhere, which sometimes means tracking in or out, um, and that can change things above the foot too. So when I say conservative, I don't mean um, anything other than trying to make a choice where that person's going to spend most of their week not causing tissue stress from a shoe. And I guess you were an interesting case of that to um, use you, but also really common because we see overwhelmingly – I'd say most of the issues we would see is people with neutral mechanics, which I'll get into in a sec, what well, that actually means, uh, running in shoes that are structured, and they're basically a uh, mismatch. You're working against the shoe, and the shoe, although it sounds good on paper in that it's more supportive, um, is actually causing tissue stress because it's not allowing you to shift weight in a in a natural and safe way. And a lot of the time, we'll see a um, person being loaded to the outside edge of their foot and we're not getting weight through the big toe. You know, much in the same way with a cycling cleat, you want um, that first MPJ to be lined up right with that big toe because it's big for a reason. It does a lot of work and it's powerful. The same thing applies with a running gait. You don't want to shift weight away from that big toe. But there are instances where we do need to try and limit how much range of motion the big toe goes through. So yeah, they're different, I guess we look at them as tools in a way, nearly mm-hmm. to try and um, encourage some things sometimes and then discourage them others.
0: Let's let's dive into that. Let's talk about some of the uh the poor assumptions or biases that people have and the mismatches that you see and and um yeah, explain that kind of that neutral uh that neutral gate compared to a non-neutral gate.
2: Yeah, so a neutral shoe um
0: a neutral shoe is basically a, a balanced
2: platform. So this is probably one of the shoes that we use um, the most, only in that a lot of people actually just really love the feel of this shoe. For the people um, who are just listening on audio and not watching, what shoe is that? This is a Brooks Ghost. So, you know, I'd say Brooks are probably the most overlooked brand, brand in running. There's nothing glamorous about this shoe. I mean, it's not as exciting as a vapor flyer, and a flyer, but it doesn't need to be because this is exactly what what I was talking about before. This is a workhorse. It's really stable. If you look at it from the top, you can see that medial edge is nice and flared and filled in through the midfoot. So you get a nice contact area uh, through those areas where people tend to shift weight if they're a little less stable. Um, underneath, there's no sort of, Huge flex grooves, so the shoe's relatively stiff, um, and one of the things that you don't want to see shoes doing is bending under the rear foot because your foot's not un- articulated there either, so we don't oh at the ankle joint it is, but we don't want to see the shoe flexing under there because it can kind of cause a sudden moment loading as well when you're hitting the ground because you get this uh sort of tweaked compression, particularly mm-hmm. as people get fatigued mm-hmm. and that can cause stuff through planner soleus calf Achilles getting overworked
0: is there um, a shoe that does that specifically that I mean under the rear foot um
2: so you see it a fair bit with um I'd say people getting into super shoes and then doing too much easy mileage when they're starting to run at a lower pace if you look at the rear of those shoes there's really not much um Rubber coverage to start with like the forefoot, obviously there is. Um, and so if you're coming through flat, you, you're going to just turn this back off of the shoe to mush pretty quickly. I mean, if I can compress it in my hand, you can imagine what three to four times your body weight does. So having, having a more stable rear foot when you're running a little lower speed and you're you know potentially fatigued or got compromised mechanics, cause you're not that mechanically sound this is a safe shoe and a super shoe in that sense would be really risky. Yeah. Outside of being risky, you would be chewing through them in a matter of weeks.
0: We're in there, 380 bucks. It's not what you want to be doing. And it's, uh, we, we were talking about when, um, the fact that, you know, you see a lot of people just casually walking around in, in super shoes because they, they might just go to the shop and decide that, Oh, if this is Nike's top shoe. It must be the best shoe. Not knowing that it is designed for high speed performance. And like you're saying, if you're, if you're too slow on it, walking or jogging, then it just completely defeats the purpose of the shoe. Yeah. And I, like you I guess you can thank the internet a little bit for that because all you'd
2: have to do is go Google um best running shoe. Um, and instead of getting anything, you know, person personally tailored. And like I guess this differs in that everyone's so individualized in what they need. There's not a one size fits all approach, even in a super shoe sense. Like, not everyone is going to get the same percentage improvement in the vapor and alpha um, as, as some other athlete will. Um, and that'll depend on your size, your mechanics, how fast you're moving, all of those sort of things. So, when often people come in and say, What's the best shoe? Uh, it's a how long is a piece of string question. Mm. And have you got time to go through this now and let's figure it out? Because we need to do a little bit of work to, to find uh, what's going to work for people. Um, And generally that means we need to look at them barefoot, both rear foot and from the front and get an idea of um, how they distribute weight through their foot structure. And I guess a common misconception as well around that is a lot of people will walk in and tell us that they, they pronate or they overpronate, which is just like saying, um, I don't know, some a really obvious movement with the foot. Say I blink often, you know, because <laughs> yeah. you need to, to lubricate your eyes and just in the same way you need to shift weight immediately to absorb shock. People do have different uh, amounts that they pronate, but it's a negative thing and being the root cause of a lot of um running related induced, but we sort of more look at whether there's where the weight is being distributed through that movement and whether there's likely to be a tissue stress in each case, um, because of their movement. And some people that'll be a fractional movement for others. That'll be, you know, their ankle bone can nearly hit the ground. And I've seen people that have run in neutral shoes their entire lives at a really high level, um, that, literally dump weight, um, horrible if you filmed them mm. and you don't want to show them either because, <laughs> it, you know, we're talking about nearly acute angles at rear foot.
0: Yeah. But they've
2: never had any issue through that medial chain at all. So you can't really use it because no one's ever been able to, in research um, or otherwise, quantify how much is too much. Um, so it's a, it's nearly pointless and irrelevant. All we need to do is provide the foot, in any case with a stable platform to do its natural thing. And for some people that'll be a neutral shoe, like the the ghost. Um, And for others, they might need a little bit of extra help through the inside edge where you would go to something slightly more built up and traditionally that's been graduated. So the midsole will have sort of a high density foam on the medial edge that tapers off towards the softer foam on the lateral edge. And that just helps that person as they land and shift weight medially, not compress and deform that medial edge. So they're not working harder to bring their foot back into that neutral position. Um, if, as a general rule, people look stable, in um, you know, get barefoot and that weight distribution is nice and even. And we can see the big toe getting, you know, reasonable activation they're going to look good in a neutral shoe. And if you look good in a neutral shoe in a stability sense, it makes no sense to jump into a structured shoe. You're not getting any extra benefit. You're more likely to be causing a problem by changing what happens above the foot, like getting you know fairly inconsistent muscle engagement through your posterior chain and through calf and soleus as well, because the weight's no longer getting um, pushed through the big toe. So you make a compromise and I'd see more issues related to people being overcorrected than people being unstable as a general observation.
1: What uh, I'm just on some things you've just said, um, I just want to pick up on your advice on if you've got an athlete who's been running really well and has very few injuries over his career, and he might be in his forties um, has been a good runner and he comes to you to get a new pair of shoes and you, you know, check him out the way that you would do thoroughly with every person who comes in, and you notice that the shoe he's been wearing his entire running career is not the correct shoe. Um, yet they've 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 run quite successfully. They haven't had many injuries. What? How do you approach that athlete? And and would you recommend that they they go into a shoe that's more? And what is the risk? with changing shoes to something they've never run in before that's got a different sort of feel to their, their planting of their foot every time they stride out.
2: Yeah. And so if they've been uninjured over 40 years, there's a, probably a good chance they've adapted to the way that that shoe, um, or that type of shoe, uh, um, allows them, I guess, to shift weight. So it's not always like we're not, we can sometimes we just change it because it's going to feel better. Like if you only know what, you know, then it's worth trying, um, on the odd chance that it will actually feel even smoother and more natural. And a lot of the time, because of the training history of someone like that, they've got, you know, they're pretty resilient to those minute stresses anyway. Um, and, generally if we get them trying um, something that makes more sense based on their mechanics, it'll feel good. And we really don't need to convince them too much because once you, once you kind of talk them through what's happening um, and we show them a little bit of footage and they can see what's occurring when we make the change, it's not too hard then to get them running outside and they'll go, actually, it feels like I don't have shoes on anymore instead of, you know, I guess a lot of the time people will, will be looking for something that feels like it's really supporting the foot or like um, snug around the foot, which is exactly what we don't want to go for. We want, it, we want it to feel like the person doesn't have a shoe on.
0: I guess it's a good time to ask um, about injury risk and, and feedback you have from uh, athletes when they do finally change shoes. And they, might, might, they might change to something that actually suits them better, but there's still got to be an adjustment period for that person with, with a new shoe, even if it's biomechanically, uh, the right fit.
2: Yeah. And it'd be just in the same way if track season rolls around for you and you want to jump in a spike again after jogging in a shoe with, you know, um, much more midsole underneath your foot, you're going to increase the range of motion through quite a few of those tissues. And then you will need to adjust slowly you don't want to just jump in and run a 5k race in a in a spike um at the start of the season because you'll get smashed and if you try and push through that in the next training week you can sometimes come quite undone so we can talk people through that but most of the time we're not going to make decisions for changing shoes that are risky because it's the the opposite of what we do we want to Reduce stress. Um, but sometimes that means another tissue might go through a slightly bigger range of motion or work slightly harder, but it's a healthy thing. We, it should be doing more than it has been. Um, and it gives another tissue that's uh, been doing too much a chance to calm down and Mm -hmm. we get, you know, restorative function of the foot again. So it's always with the intention to get proper, you know, safe function out of the foot not create risk because we you know that's no one needs that
1: no and it's uh jordan's in a good example of this uh changing shoes from what he's been running in for a while and and probably a combination of things can happen to you during that transition period if you actually jump into a a uh, training session that's maybe a little bit too long. It's got too much load um, with a different shoe. Sure, you could actually create a risk uh, issue there. Um, would that, Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah. I, I think, yeah, everyone will have different sort of breaching point for, that. I guess that capacity for stress. Um, what's hard to know though with that situation is whether it was the training session or the shoe that was the tipping point, you know, we can, sometimes we can get everything right in the store um, and someone goes away and gets excited by the fact that they've got a new, um, I guess, shoe or something and they go from running say three sessions normally per week to doing five um, runs in the following three weeks that's, you know, a significant increase in load. And even, it don't matter what shoe you put yourself in, you're still going to ha- have a, a breakdown. So the shoes are only part of the picture. you still got to be smart about how you train um, and how you apply stress to the body. Um, but, yeah, I guess we wouldn't advise someone to, say, swap a shoe and then go out and do a key race simulation that weekend having never done a couple of faster sessions in it because that you know the conservative thing to do with there would be at least get an idea first of how you're going to pull up in it um especially moving closer to a race and get a feel for it a lot of the newer stuff the more performance-based stuff there's this, an element of having to learn the feel of the shoe and how to run in it nearly like a tennis racket having a sweet spot um, and so you want to do that as a bare minimum, but also to see how your body responds to the change and whether you're going to need more of a period to kind of, um, I guess, adjust to it.
1: Is there I much didn't... difference, sorry, George. Um, is there much difference between you training in your everyday, uh, you know, workhorse shoe like the Brooks Ghost that you've uh, recommended and then jumping into, you know, a, a fast set of, uh, you know, road, road racing shoes, um with with the uh, carbon sole. Um, is there is there going to be a big contrast in the feel to that? Yeah. In short,
2: yeah. Most people would notice a significant difference in just how much energy you're getting back in a force out for, or force in, force out sense. So a lot of those newer mid-soles are designed to be really high rebound, um, and they have quite an elastic property. Uh, but that also means that they're compromised on durability and stability because they're quite soft and, you know, mushy as opposed to sort of denser and more stable com- um, compounds that are in your mileage shoes. Um, they tend to be a lot more cutaway and obviously the carbon fiber plate in the midsole um, gives it a quite a snappy feel. So a lot of people feel like they're nearly getting levered forward and it creates this sort of forward-feeling movement, particularly as the relative velocity increases when they're running.
0: What about the
1: live? Sorry, cutting in. You, You go, George.
0: I just in that sense is you've got to be careful with what you spoke about before, with uh shoes potentially giving you extra tissue recruitment and especially if you're getting that spring forward with the super shoe, uh, you've got to be really careful that you're not running faster than you're actually capable of, uh, just because the shoe's propelling you forward. Yeah. And it's
2: a it's an easy trap, you know, to fall into. All of a sudden you go out and you start running all of your easy K's, um, zone three, and then you know you realize that you're exhausted at the end of the week or, um, yeah, you, you compromise in the shoe because it's not as stable. So you're using tissues that you wouldn't normally use a lot more just to get through an easy run.
0: Plus the shoes. So are... you can
2: see then the relationship between sort of making, having a safe workhorse and then having the shoe that allows you to, work you know run fast when you need to there's very specific things they don't cross over too well in running
0: and plus the shoes have such limited mileage on them right? because they um they, they've only got you know potentially some top pro marathon runners are, are you wearing the uh, alpha flies once in a marathon and um, then they're getting rid of it but for most other people they might get 100k out of them but that is, that won't last you very many weeks if it's your um mileage shoe you know yeah, no. And like we've had people that have come in
2: to update their shoes having bought, say, an Alpha or a Vapor online and been horribly disappointed at how little mileage they got out of it. Um, but only to find out that it wasn't a shoe to jog in, that it's specific, like driving a Ferrari in traffic. <laughs> they don't like staying in fast first. Yeah. You know, they need to be on a road or like an open road anyway mm-hmm. or a racetrack.
0: Yep. So this is a, just a great process to learn. And uh, a lot of the stuff you're saying is just gold information. And the conversations we have with athletes um, are that they just have no idea what shoe to pick. And so hearing a lot of this stuff is so good, but it comes back to what you said before with it. You know, the information being how long is a piece of string. So can we take it back to that kind of starting process where you're getting someone in and then you're looking through their gate? Uh, what are the key things you're looking for? What should people try to be aware of themselves? And then and then where do you go next? Um, with the, I guess the first thing we really
2: try and understand before we get anyone on the treadmill is unpacking as much as we can about their training history, their injury history, their shoe history, Um, anything that's going to potentially give us insight into why they might be, if they are in an injured state. Um, if there's referral information from a practitioner, we, you know, generally digest a bit of that too, um, just to create as a clearer picture as possible. And then the treadmill really just helps us confirm or, you know, deny certain things, um, by looking at the way that they're moving. And sometimes we pick up things that haven't been mentioned um, and sometimes, you know, it's not a sure thing. So we're very willing um, and aware when we need to use other people in our network, um, which we do readily to get them, uh, to get another perspective first. But then they will end up, you know, solving the problem by maybe they needed to do, I guess a lot of the time it's a strength component that's missing from their training and it's immediately obvious when you watch people run mm. um so we can sort that out and the shoe is just a you know complementary part of that process but it wasn't the i guess the kryptonite or the thing that was really causing the problem um uh the other thing i'd say is uh, off the, of the treadmill one of the most overlooked things for sure with a running shoe as opposed to any other shoe is how people fit it from a space perspective. And I think we talked about this too. Um, but I don't want to gloss over it because it probably has as much influence as anything else that you would look at, if not more. Um, but from an injury point of view, um, uh, this, this causes probably as much, in my opinion, if not more stress to the planner than anything, but if you imagine the foot when it's hitting the ground, it's kind of like a, a frog hitting glass. So it splays under load um, and your foot is, you know, they say it should be as dexterous as your hand. We all know that's fairly unachievable, but it—it it is flexible. And it is articulated for a reason because it needs to simultaneously be able to absorb that ground contact shock and then turn that into elastic energy when the big toe whips through and that windlass mechanism occurs. So it makes no sense then to have your foot jammed in a shoe or snug in a shoe because you're putting pressure across those metatarsal junctions. And in a lot of cases you're deviating that big toe. So that joint doesn't have correct alignment. It's pretty hard for it to really engage. Um, You're also going to create stress by hitting the end of the shoe 170 times a minute which if you imagine three to four times your body weight through your foot that's a lot of force we're talking about tons of force being misdirected through your foot structure um, and if you don't get into a bigger shoe your body's going to try and solve the problem for you by retracting your toes and that means putting the planner under excessive tension um, and then after a while if you're continually keeping that planner from lengthening and getting into a relaxed position, you can just set off the tissue at the insertion. So I would say from what we've gathered in the store, we set up a a spreadsheet to get data on people that we were seeing present with um, plantar fasciitis or similar um, plantar stress. And nearly 95% of the time or 96% of the time on the spreadsheet that people were between... One to one and a half sizes too small. So <laughs> their shoes are always too small. You nearly don't reach down and feel the end of the shoe um, with plantar fasciitis uh, sufferers and find that they've got space. It's, I guess the misconception is that if the shoe's snug, they've got support, like snug equals supportive, which is not true at all. Snug is doing the reverse to your foot. It's turning it into a fist at the end of your leg rather than a spring. Um, and sometimes we'll swap people into a bigger shoe and they'll push us on a little bit. I've always been an eight, which has always been too small, but once they run outside and they go, Oh wow, I can actually feel, you know, uh, I can feel like my big toe is actually working. And cause it's the first time it's been able to actually get into a position where it can be loaded up properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the size is the thing that you really need to have sorted. And that probably, is compounded in longer events or an event like an Ironman, where you're going to spend you know a few hours on the bike as well with centrifugal forces sending plasma and all sorts of body fluid down to your feet and then you're putting it into a shoe and then running you know a marathon if you don't have the correct fitting shoe at a bare minimum you're going to damage your toenails um <laughs> And before I, I know, a lot of people see it as a badge of honour. But if you're dropping toenails, there's something wrong. Your shoes don't fit. It's not a normal part of running. It's there's a, a there's a mechanical reason for why there's stress being applied at the end of the at the toes. So if you allow a little bit more space, and that doesn't mean getting you know sloppy or having like you know four different pairs of shoes that are a size bigger each time. Just getting the correct fit across the foot and a lot of the time that'll mean going to another width rather than going up too many sizes to get the width because that's not the correct way to really get the true fit.
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But yeah, there's a real method to making sure the shoe fits properly and that's a big part of I guess what we do. It's
0: simple but it's often overlooked. And you guys are going one to one-and-a-half sizes bigger than the person's shoe size. So if they're normally wearing a nine, you'll put them in in ten and 10 and a halfs.
2: Yeah. So, well, and it's not a hard and fast rule because it will depend a lot on the size of the person and then how much force they're going through or is going through their foot, sorry. So if someone comes in and they're, you know, six-foot-four and they've got a size 13-foot to the end of their toe, they've got a lot more force going through their foot and their foot is going to splay a lot more. So you generally leave a little bit more space, um, for a smaller foot, not going to need to expand as much. There's less force, less smaller foot structure, um, and also smaller longitudinal arch too. So it depends a little bit on the foot shape for some people, because if you measure from the heel to the first MPJ on some people, um, the ratio is longer than relative to the overall foot. So you would take a bigger size because when they hit the ground, they're going to actually lengthen further than someone with a more cavus foot type where the foot's, I guess, high arched and rigid. They don't have a lot of articulation to their foot, so they're not going to lengthen as much uh, during their running cycle. So they don't need as big a shoe. Yeah. But that's only something that you kind of get to know from just looking at lots and lots and lots of bare feet and watch, watching a lot of people run. Um, but if sometimes I measure people and they stand up and they, they're even just standing there uh, with body weight going through their feet. They lengthen a size and they're already on the end again. So mm. naturally, you need to allow more space for when the running occurs.
0: So at this point, uh, you've kind of got their gait, you're getting the sizing right how do you then even start with a brand because i know that you showed the brooks ghost before and uh that's a a bit of a go-to shoe potentially but um where do you even start with brands and um and once you pick a brand what type or i mean talk us through that
2: yeah well the ghost we don't bring out like for everyone it, it it's a, i've used it as a good stable neutral example because i think they really nailed um what a training shoe needs in all its parts stable fits well um feels good to a lot of people but it'll depend on what we're seeing so like if your foot's you know you've got a wider um toe splay we'll be looking at brands that tend to offer a more open toe box um or more space across the toe box which are uh well most of them do them it depends on the shape of the foot so like all the brands will do a a wider fit within reason Nike in Australia don't bring in a lot of width options. It's pretty much a unisex last, which is slightly wider for women and narrower for men. But uh, a lot of the other brands will do widths. And then it just depends on the shape. I wish I could kind of break down that a little bit more, but it's very much a subconscious thing that, you know, you scan their foot with your um, eyes, I guess. And, kind of already know what I'm going to go grab and a couple of options that are going to work well. And then some more, I guess, anomalies that could potentially feel good if what I think I could see um, is actually occurring. And then it's, we really just need to get them running. So we take them outside or um, in cases where they're slightly more mobile through their foot and we need to look at the stability a little bit more closely, we'll get them up on the treadmill and each shoe first to make sure they're coming to the balanced position. Um, and then we'll work through the shoes outside. Um, I know a lot of people try them on and stand in them, but if you're not running in the shoe and that's what you're planning to do with it, it's really hard to know um, how it feels um, and whether it's going to work for you. So we, we have a couple of little cues that we give people to help work through uh, the appropriate options outside and see, um, you know, which one's the most comfortable, which I think we did with you too. And our yeah, general rule is like to kind of get someone in a shoe that they feel like isn't there.
0: What I liked about the process was, um, yeah, you you didn't necessarily love a specific brand. You just brought out, okay, these are the, the neutral shoes that could potentially work for you. Here's a bit of a range um, and, and let's have a crack in them. But um Yeah. One, yeah one thing worth saying with shoes is it's quite different to
2: say getting a bike, you know, you don't, you, as you spend more money, you don't get better componentry. The laces don't get spun out of gold and, you know, it, you don't need to spend a lot of money to get a good shoe. Um, so the brand thing is, you know, they all make neutral shoes. They all make structured shoes. Some of them make more safe neutral shoes than others for the typical athlete. So it'll depend a lot on what we've picked up. You know, if you're a more efficient runner with sound mechanics, we can probably play around the edges a little bit more with, you know, shoe options.
0: So I know it's hard to break down, um, but can can you help us and the listener um, just get a sense of uh, potentially what do you think certain brands are aiming to do because, uh, or does it really not matter? They all bring out a neutral shoe. They all bring out a wider shoe. Um, it's just tried on and, and what, what feels best, or is there a way to kind of narrow down, you know, the hawkers are aiming for this kind of thing and the brooks are aiming to be more, more neutral and, um, the Asics are trying to be more of a supportive shoe. What could you break that down? Every brand will sort of have a bit of a
2: DNA in like what they're known for. Um, for Mizuno, they've always been wedded to this wave plate idea. Um, you know, I guess Nike, they don't really attach themselves to one particular thing, but they've definitely, at least in the last 10 years, been the people that have pushed the envelope with performance um, pretty unfearlessly, too. Like every other brand was kind of scraping together to try and come up with a super shoe after um, they initially did it. I actually, The other day I looked at the original one and I was, I remember putting it on my foot the first time and thinking, wow, this is a crazy shoe. This is a full game changing shoe. Um, And then I looked at it in comparison to today's super shoes. And it's like, it's not that cushioned and um, it looks quite thin. But when Mm. I saw it back then I was like, it looks like a moon shoe. Mm. I've never seen anything like it. So it really has progressed quite quickly um like it's allowed other brands like if you have a dna that is particular it allows you to kind of find a crack in an industry that's got a lot of long-term players like i think the second youngest brand that we stock is probably nike um at, and Hawker would be the youngest or maybe ultra but because they're doing something different, like they're sort of known for more cushioning than a lot of the other brands. You know, they were started by two French ultra So they increased the midsole uh, stack height to see what effect it had on longer distance races and that worked for some people. So they, they sort of have found their niche um, and they're a little bit more geared towards providing, you know, a highly cushioned platform at a low weight. In a lot of their models um brooks aren't trying to reinvent the wheel and they they make really safe shoes which is why i personally like them because i i don't need to reinvent the wheel with every person that comes in i, I want to get them moving safely and most of the time yeah that's you know it, it is a ghost for a lot of rec level athletes or you know a glycerin or equivalent um and if you just looked at this i guess a snapshot of the population, like I'd probably say that 75 to 80% of people are better off in neutral shoes based on what I see on the treadmill. Mm. But if you look at the sales breakdown um, across the country, it's probably more flipped and somewhere like 75 to 80% of people are wearing structured shoes, mm. which tells you one thing that too many people are wearing the wrong shoes. Um, type of shoe um yeah category
1: wise anyway if you found um that the older athlete are are suited to a particular brand that you would direct them to as compared to the younger athlete who might have a um uh you know might be running let's just give pacing if someone's able to run you know 2.30, 2.40 per kilometre pace, 3-minute K pace to 3.30 and all the way up to 5-minute, 6-minute K paces. Are you directing people to a particular shoe, obviously based on their running gait and planting, but in terms of the speed that they run at? No. In short answer is no. Um,
2: What Like there's a point, I guess, from a performance point of view where – if you're running, you know, as you said, 240, 250 pace, you're going to probably be better off using a super shoe as opposed to a, you know, a Hocker Bondi, because that's probably going to get in the way of how well you move. But that because that's not really a a typical training pace where they're going to spend 80% of their week, we wouldn't use, Pace too much to dictate the type of shoe we're going for outside of them needing something that's specific for racing. So, when people come in and they tell you their pace, it's kind of irrelevant in a way because it doesn't probably dictate too much in how we're going to look at stability through the foot. Um, and I'm definitely not getting anyone, even if they told me they can run 240 pace on the treadmill at that speed, because it could be fairly catastrophic. <laughs> Um yeah no in yeah we don't really look at pace as a dictating thing it would be more about oh, yeah, yeah know how efficient the runner is we can probably get away with a little more with someone who's got you know quite sound mechanics has been running a long time can deal with a high load each week um as opposed to a you know an older athlete might have a you know huge training history or not um, we want to make, I guess, a safer
1: um, decision or problem solving for them. I suppose I'm thinking a little bit in line of uh, the Ironman triathlete who's running a marathon and could possibly be only running six to seven minute K pace. If they're in a, a really fast shoe, are they going to be better off running in a training shoe um, than trying to run in a, you know, in a a carbon-plated shoe where they're they're just not running fast. It's almost like, you know, the the slowest paces they can possibly hold for for 42K.
2: When part of that is only answerable in a case-by-case, I guess, situation. But in in a general sense, yes, you'd be better off in a shoe that is more stable because the performance benefit of running in an Alpha Fly when you're running six-minute Ks is probably you know fairly negligent like I, I think there's probably more risk induced than there would be performance gained in that case. Um, if someone has the capacity to run uh, you know three minutes thirty for their marathon um, off the bike which would make them fairly elite I guess too but <laughs> yeah. hit, I guess the point is they and they blow up and they end up running six minute ks then still point for them to wear the shoe. They just didn't have their day. But if your race pace is, you know, at best going to be six minutes if everything goes to plan, don't worry about the alpha fly because it's not going to make a difference for you. You'd be better off getting through the race and putting more, I guess, into the training and looking at how you could tweak things um to get that uh relative race pace up. And then, you know, that you know, there's probably more screws to turn with the shoe down the track, but it, it's not going to be the thing that'll you know get you there. Um, in a like, we can't look for the shoe for the answer for everything. I guess is what I'm saying.
0: So, do you know where that line is of uh, approximately where the performance gain just decreases so much to end the the increased risk of the lack of stability in the in the super shoes, the Alpha Flies, or something? I know that at the top end, they they've started to do some study on. Uh, it's like a three percent increase or something in in the person's ability to. I know I can't even remember what that study was referring to with the three percent, whether it was time or, um, but where that would that would decrease that decreases obviously the slower you go. So at what point that that line is about? Um, it, well, if you're looking at it, yeah, it, it 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 doesn't have a hard and
2: fast line because of the, the individual nature of so many people's mechanics, um, like. There's probably, a, there is probably a theory in there that even though that person's running six minute K's, um, for that race, they might've only been running six minute, 30 K's if they had it otherwise not been in it because they're getting quite a bit of, you know, energy back, or I guess they're stopping the loss of energy that they would have only had in a shoe. Um, a lot of the studies, though, good. Um, some of them use some fairly um, odd samples at sizes. Like, a lot of them don't include women, which is which, which is kind of weird given that they're selling the um, them at that level too and, like, women are using the shoes and breaking records too. And they've been fairly small groups, mm-hmm. I think. There'll be more testing that'll be done, but it, it, there's not a significant, like, cutoff point where you're going to lose the benefit it's just kind of becomes pointless in a way because mm-hmm. it'd be until you find out otherwise and you'd probably need to do the study on the person you know it like individually to know i'd say there'd be still more benefit in getting in a safe shoe and running more k's and you know getting fitter you know training more and training smarter that's
1: a that's a really good answer uh, i i th- one of the things I'm intrigued at is what would your advice be to um, an athlete who, you know, what should be in his bag? Should he have a couple of pair of training shoes and one racing shoe going at the one time? How many shoes should you really have going at the one time? If you're a guy who's competing or girl who's competing um, in, a, in a half marathon or a 10K or an Ironman Olympic distance 10K, how many shoes should you have going at the one time? I'm obviously going to say a lot, but no. <laughs>
0: no
2: um, I, I think kind of the, I look at it from consecutive days running a lot of the time because if you were, say, like for an arbitrary number running 30Ks a week, which would probably be a fairly average distance for people that we'd see come through, sometimes that means they're running consecutive days like back to back and they might have a higher load day and then a you know, lower load day. And that point, you're probably going to start to benefit from, firstly, just breaking up the repetitiveness of running in the same shoe, because you're going to use your feet and your body uh, above your foot in a slightly different, though, safe way. And given what we know about running-related injuries and the repetitive stress of them, um, anything that we can can do to regulate repetitive stress is going to be a healthy thing just in the same way that like, you know, running on different surfaces can help regulate that too. So multiple shoes, if you're invested in your sport, is always a good idea as long as they're safe. Um, That doesn't mean four different alpha fly colorways each day of the week. It means, you know, maybe one day you are running in a slightly higher stack shoe and then you're running in a slightly lower stack shoe um, or something slightly more flexible. just to sort of break it up a little bit, um, from a performance point of view, if you, um, you know, I guess like if you were someone who did a day a week where you went down to the track and did some fast two hundreds, um, and you were invested enough to buy a spike, it's, it makes sense to put the spike on, um, and do the fast 200s a lot of the time, if you can get away with it, because you're going to be for the sense of the workout anyway, trying to recruit as many fast, twitch fibers as possible. So if the shoe is going to allow you to go faster and recruit more fast pitch, there's more sense to doing that for the workout with the outcome that we want. Um, and I guess the same way with a mileage shoe, um, you put it on and it lets you go run for two hours, um, which is the, you know, we want to build some aerobic capacity. Um, and you had a choice between that and another shoe, which is a little bit thin and you start to get sore through your calves and planner when you run too far in it, the obvious sense is to have the shoe that lets you go long and protects you. Mm -hmm. But there's always going to be merit to having multiple shoes depending on what you're doing. And that includes potentially a race day shoe, you know, picking race a shoe. Day, Yeah, for sure. If And that, again, if it's your first, you know, sprint distance try um, and you just want to give it a go and see how you feel, it's probably not too necessary to go and get a racing shoe. You, you could potentially love it, but I, I think it's more important, again, to have that training shoe dialed in. And then as you sort of get more into it, you will find that you need, you know, a different... You'll, you'll prefer a different shoe even for different things depending on what you're trying to achieve.
0: Some unbelievable information you've given us, Mitch. Uh, I guess a couple of questions to finish off. Uh, what, what do you want the listeners to know about shoes? Is there any more misconceptions we haven't covered or just information that you want to get across that you feel is really important for people to know? Um, I would say if you're
2: not time poor, it's always worth going through the options because they change all the time. Um, and just because one shoe worked for you at one point, it doesn't mean the current version of it will. Um, cause even though it looks the same and it carries the same name, they, some odd things happen with what they do with the shoe. They might decide to make it softer. They might decide to make it more cushioned, um, and off the shelf buying without sort of trying and getting a feel for it. First, it's a bit risky. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can get into a, Run specialty store and go through the process properly. Um, you know you're going to end up in something that makes sense mechanically, and you'll go through the options and you'll end up in something every time that feels comfortable too. So I would always just, I, I would always just put the time aside to go try it. Um, like you would test ride a bike, you you got to get on it to kind of get a feel for it.
1: It's uh, as most important. I was talking to my other son, Matt, the other day about a mattress that he was sleeping on, and you spend, you know, how many hours a day on that bed? You want to you want to make sure you've got the one that suits you. And yeah. same with running, you're, you're going to spend, you know, your passion is running. You want to make sure that you're you're putting the shoe on that's going to enable you to stay injury free. And that's one of the messages that I'm sure you you must see when people come in. I've had this shoe, I've been injured, you know, and they're just running in the wrong shoe. Um,
2: Yeah, I guess it's like analogous with how much money and time people would invest in a bike fit. You know, we do it for performance and we do it also to prevent injury and overuse. It's the same thing when you're looking at shoes, although, they, you know, they cost a lot less so people tend to skim over them. But um, it has just as big an influence and a lot of the time you're spending as much time in the shoe
0: so you want to have it right. Last question. uh, And this could be a tough one for you to answer, but I want you to give us your personal favorite, favorite, just mileage trainer shoe, your favorite kind of maybe more high intensity training shoe and your favorite race shoe. And before you answer, I must caveat that this I want your answer here for the listener. uh, This doesn't mean go out and buy this shoe. Uh, I'm just interested to see what what you come up with because you see so many shoes, you know them all so well, but this I can imagine that uh, whatever you say, a whole bunch of people go out and just buy that straight away. That's not what we're saying.
2: Um, I'm at the expense of um, sounding biased here because a few of the shoes that I'm going to pick up are from the same brand. Yeah. (laughs) That's Uh, what I'm interested in. Um, I bought a couple. Actually, yeah, I'd say I'm lying. I'd be splitting hairs if I said I had a favorite between... This and this for, um, I guess anything up to a marathon. Um, what are they? What do you? What do you got in your hands? I've got a Vaporfly in in one hand, and this is an RC Elite, which is New Balance's, I guess, equivalent. Um, this is probably a slightly more durable shoe than the Vaporfly, which is why I also like it. You can go down and do, you know warm up in it. Even it feels good to run a little bit slower than I'd say this does that a vapor fly does. Um, and then do, you know, K reps or, you know, a threshold or something like that. It feels light and snappy. Um, this would be my preference if I was racing though, I just, it has a slightly more lively feel,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, on some of the longer runs where I've needed to do a portion of it at like a race pace, Simulation. I've used the alpha because you're out there for you know two hours plus sometimes. Um there's a little bit more shoe underfoot. I just find I don't get as beat up. Um so I like that for the longer duration workouts. Um I don't oh actually, yeah, I do. Give me a sec. I
0: have we wiggle some stuff around here. You're it's right everywhere. Mitch is actually in at the, uh, the running store, so he's got a whole bunch of shoes here, which is great. <laughs> this is my current miley shoe too. Um, this is
2: the Nike Invincible. It's the same compound that's in the racing shoes, um, but it's got a much bigger coverage of rubber on the outside, so it's a lot more durable and there's a lot more of it. See on the rear foot, how flared all that geometry is too. Mm-hmm but it's a lot safer to go slow in. Um, and for the same reason, those other shoes feel great. This thing feels like it just gives a lot back when you're jogging down the street. Um, I've really enjoyed the feel of that. And if I'm, you know, being smart and, um, walking the tour, I'll put the ghost on too on the days that I, you know, I need a particularly safe shoe to, to just get out the door, um, day after you know a bigger session or um a few weeks ago i did it i ran some trails and i was a long portion downhill and my quads because i hadn't been doing it for a while were like tree trunks the next day not in size but in how rigid they were Um, (laughs) and that shoe of the two helped me get out the door a lot more because it, it it seemed to sort of um stop me over engaging through the front as much And yeah, so I I mix it up. I mean, I've got the benefit of being able to try a lot of shoes too. Yeah. I tend to cycle through them and find things that work at the, at, um, now and then, you know, that changes too.
0: And that um, that we did touch on the fact that, uh, you know, on those slower days, those easy days, or even we'd call them recovery days, there is that benefit of choosing a safer, potentially heavier shoe just to force you to slow down because if you jump in a lighter shoe that feels amazing, you start creeping up in pace and suddenly you're doing the wrong session.
2: Yeah, the allure of high-intensity training and it can also be influenced by how your shoes feel too. You
0: it's a big that's pe- quite-
2: yeah specific shoes for specific things, you know, depending on the outcome we want. It's
0: a big pet peeve of Dads is uh, athletes telling him that they they couldn't slow down in the, in the in the recovery runs uh, and I guess Dad, your advice would be put some bricks on your feet I mean <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah. um and
2: uh, your mileage shoe is not going to be much help to you if all you do is go out the door and hammer down the
1: street and you know you you're going to end up in a heat pretty quickly. Yeah. The answer to that is always uh, turn around the corner and go up the next hill. That'll slow you down every time. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. That was a whole bunch of great information. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. And um, yeah, thanks for giving us some shoe knowledge, which is definitely needed in the athlete world. And I, I've said to you a few times now, it's just, there's just such a lack of information on, out there, which is why we wanted to get you on. So thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome, guys. Good chatting with you.
1: Thanks, Mitch.